welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time today to join us. My name is Jim Sacalaris, and I'm a client advisor for North America Institutional here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, Gary Duglapali, portfolio manager within the U.S. Equity Group. Over the next hour, we'll shed some light on what we are seeing in the market and how it is impacting U.S. equities. To facilitate this discussion, I'm going to pose some questions I've prepared for Gary. So, Gary, welcome. I hope you're well. Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here. <laughs> Good. Tell us a bit about your background, Gary. I'm an engineer by educational training, and after college, I worked in software design and development for six years. During that time, I became more and more interested in investing and ultimately decided that it was the career path I wanted to follow. Having never taken any finance courses in my undergrad, I realized that I'd have to get an MBA to make that transition. And I went to the University of Chicago for business school. After business school, I worked at Hero Price from 1997 to 2003. I covered mostly technology companies for the six years I was at T. Rowe. In 2003, I was recruited to J.P. Morgan by a portfolio manager who had moved from T. Rowe to J.P. Morgan in 2002. I'd had a good relationship with him and a fair bit of success supporting him, and he wanted me to come and be the number two on the J.P. Morgan Lowest Cap Growth Strategy. And I came over in July of 2003. And in 2005, he ended up leaving for another opportunity, and I was asked to head up the strategy. So I've been leading the large cap growth strategy since 2003. And I really tried to take the lessons I had when I was at Chiro. I was there during the extremes in the late 90s, extreme up. And then We saw I was at the epicenter of one of the biggest busts in investment history from 2000 to 2003. And also the lessons I learned as an engineer, process, discipline, and continuous improvement in what I do. And so I've taken my life lessons, my investing lessons, and uh, tried to bring them to bear over the last 17 years I've been at J.P. Morgan and the last 15 years as the lead portfolio manager on the strategy. That's interesting because given your educational background and your engineering background, what is your philosophy and process you use in selecting stocks for the large cap growth strategy? Yeah, I think it's a reflection, as you alluded to, of all of my experiences. I start with a framework of risk management and the three key risks that we're focused on navigating are first. In growth investing, I think it's critically important not to miss the truly outstanding stocks. These are the stocks that can be the mega winners, the 10-baggers, and so on. And we think that in order to outperform over time, we can't miss those mega winners. So the first key risk is don't miss the truly outstanding stocks. The second key risk is having lived through the tech bust from 2000 to 2003 and watching some stocks go to zero and a lot of stocks go down over 90%, it's mitigating the damage from the poor stock selection. So mitigating the damage from the losers is critically important to long-term success. 
And then the third risk is really understanding when our process is in favor in the market and to really drive our performance and alpha generation in those favorable environments. And then in more challenging environments, realizing that we may give some alpha back, but try not to give too much back. So those are the philosophical risks that we try and navigate. And what we're trying to do to translate that into stock selection is what we call our three-legged stool framework in identifying the really big winners. That three-legged stool framework is first, what we're looking for are companies that are going after large addressable markets that are undergoing change. Second, we're looking for companies that have a competitive advantage, so something that will allow them to gain market share relative to peers. And this could be technology, it can be distribution, it could be caused by regulation. And then finally, we look for companies that have good price momentum. And we look at price momentum as allowing us to manage a couple of risks. One is the time value of money. It could be a great idea fundamentally, but if we believe it, but the market doesn't, it could be a while before we get the reward for that. And second, it's a way of embedding humility into the process because we may think it's a great idea, but we could be wrong. There's a lot of collective intelligence in the market, and we want to harness that intelligence. And so I think that that idea of humility is something that's very important to what we do. Both imagination and humility are a couple of characteristics that we try and imbue within the process in multiple ways. So that's a brief description of the philosophy and process. Yeah. Given your three-legged stool philosophy, if you will, can you walk us through how you've had the portfolio positioned and the actions you have been taking given the recent spike in volatility? Yeah. I think if we look back at 2019, we had a very strong year in 2019. We were up almost 40%. And in February, at the peak of the market and of our returns for the year, we were up over 70%. We were up about 72% from the Christmas Eve 2018 low to February 19th of this year. So coming into this year, we've had quite substantial gains in the overall portfolio. And then there were particular stocks that were even much better than that. And so we were taking some chips off the table and stocks that had done exceptionally well starting in mid-January. And as we progressed through January, the market kept going up and some of these stocks kept going up into February. We actually ended up with what for us is a fairly high level of cash. We normally were about one to one and a half percent cash in the strategy and we got to five or even a little over five in February. And then as the market started correcting quite severely in February and then into March, we put that cash to work. So at the end of February, we were at about 5% cash. At the end of March, we were about half a percent cash. So we went from well above normal levels of cash to well below normal levels of cash within a rapid period of time. And so that gives you a sense of what we've done in terms of, broadly speaking, over the last three months or so. Gary, you put quite a bit of cash back to work. So where in particular were you putting that cash to work? Talk about some of the stocks or industries, for example, that you may have applied it to, such as semiconductors and biotech, et cetera. Yeah, I think you actually touched on 
two of the areas that we added a good bit to semiconductors and within healthcare, especially biotech, were two big chunks of where cash went. And then we also added idiosyncratically across a variety of stocks that we have a lot of confidence in and we thought were being unfairly hit in the market meltdown. Maybe I'll go into a little more detail on semiconductors and biotech. There are two main reasons why we added to semiconductors. First, semiconductors broadly as an industry tend to benefit from cyclical recovery. And so we recognize that the economic backdrop was likely to be quite weak this year. And that as we looked into next year, it was going to rebound quite a bit from this year and then possibly in 2022 as well. And so one of the industries that is a big beneficiary of that is semiconductors. And within that, we added to semiconductor capital equipment a couple of companies that were, we felt, fundamentally super well positioned without getting into the particular names. One of these companies is really well tied to the memory market. Their equipment has shown a consistent competitive advantage versus other equipment makers. And another semiconductor equipment company has the latest and almost a monopolistic position in a part of the semiconductor capital equipment market. And we think that's going to be one of the biggest growth areas going forward. And so that was part of it. And then the other part was in the devices, in the actual manufacturing of semiconductors. And those areas were where the semiconductor companies focused on data analytics and artificial intelligence. That's where we really added to, because we think that data analytics is one of the key enablers of competitive advantage for companies across a variety of industries. So when we look at some of the biggest winners of the last decade, whether it's a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon or Netflix, we view a big part of their competitive advantage as having come from their ability to analyze data, come to better business decisions, which allows them to gain market share and gather more data analyze that, and it becomes a virtuous cycle. And so these other semiconductor companies that we invested in in March, we think are really enabling data analytics. And then in terms of biotech, we think that this is a part of the market that's been out of favor really since 2015. So it has been out of favor for about five years, but these are companies that have continued to invest in research and development of drugs, the pipelines are good. And there was a lot of pressure on them in 2019 as the year before the election, when a lot of people were concerned that there would be further pricing concessions that would need to be made. But we looked at them and we thought there were individual companies that had very good pipelines and had success in moving from phase two to phase three or phase three to the market. And we felt that some of those companies had drugs which were going to be much bigger than anticipated at the same time that those stocks had done quite poorly for four to five years. And so we felt that the combination of low expectations that were going to be beaten by the company's fundamental performance made them quite attractive. So those were the two big sectors or subsectors within the market that we added to in the downdraft. Thank you for that, Gary. What are your thoughts about the prospects of active management in the current market? Well, Jim, you're asking an active manager what he thinks of active management. So it's 
by asking a barber, you know, if you need a haircut. And right now, <laughs> Which I, I do. <laughs> I, I definitely need a haircut right now. But, you know, in all seriousness, one of the things to consider, if I was in the shoes of the folks that are listening, is that right now the top 10 weights in the Rock 1000 growth represent 40% of the benchmark. Now, I've looked at stats going back over the last 20 plus years, and this is the largest weight in the top 10 that we have in the last 22 years I've looked at. And some of these stocks have had exceptional performance, and that's how you get to this really high weighting. And so if I'm listening to this call and I just believe that these are the companies that are going to continue to win, then maybe I feel pretty good about owning an ETF or passive. I, on the other hand, think that some of these stocks, so I'll pick Amazon as an example. Early in 2015, the stock was under $300. Just recently, it was over $2,400. So it's up 800% in the last five years. Now, it's a great company, and we still own some Amazon, but it's one of our largest underweights. And the reason is that in our process, we're looking for where companies can exceed market expectations. This company has gone from $150 billion of market cap five years ago to $1.2 trillion of market cap. That's a huge amount of incremental market cap that was added. So as we think about the next five and 10 years, is this going to be one of the really big winners? Like in our judgment, there are other companies that we get really excited by. I just laid out a case why I think Tesla could be a 10-bagger or more over the next 10 years. It's difficult for me to make the case that Amazon is going to be one of the extraordinary stocks for the next five to 10 years. It might be a fine stock, but then if we look at collectively the 40% that's in the top 10 of the Russell 1000 growth, I have some similar concerns with some of the other companies. And so right now we have the biggest underweight relative to the top 10 in the Russell 1000 growth that I've had since I've run this strategy. So we're as I said, about 40% is in the top 10, and we're at about 25%. So we have an almost 50 basis point difference. So this is the most pronounced difference we've had. And I'm finding a lot of other companies that I think are pretty attractive. So I think that's the way I would think about it if I was an institutional client listening to this call is, do I want to make a bet that the 40% that's massively outperformed over the last five to 10 years is going to persist in the outperformance going forward. And as I said, from my perspective, we have the largest underweight, and we're finding a lot of attractive ideas that are not already a huge part of the benchmark. Well, I think you've given people something to think about, that's for sure. In 2019, you authored a paper titled, Why We Are in the Early Innings of a Secular Bull Market, where you predicted the S&P 500 would reach 10,000 by the end of this decade. Given all that's transpired, Gary, what is your view today? I think I said by the mid-2030, so um, (laughs) just to be clear here, which is still a long ways from now. And one of the things I talked about in there is that it's not to say that we're not going to have correction. We absolutely will, but within secular bull markets, they tend to be really great buying opportunities. So let me step back and say what we really pointed to in that paper. And it's that there are four key reasons why I think that we're in what I call a secular bull market. And just for definition's sake, 
I separated periods going back about 100 years in the S&P into secular bear markets and secular bull markets. A secular bear market, the way I defined it, is a prolonged period of time where the market makes returns below normal. So if we think of normal as 7% price and a couple percent in terms of dividends, so if you're talking about 15 to 20 years where you make below that, that's a secular bear market. And then those have been followed by 15 to 20 years where you make above that, above the normal historical returns. And that's what I call a secular bull market. So from March of 2000, when the S&P was at 1550 until February of 2016, when it was at 1810. So you went 16 years where you made about 1% price return in the S&P. So that was a secular bear market, the way I defined it. And so I believe that we were looking at 15 to 20 years, so somewhere in the early to mid-2030s of above average returns. There's no magic about S&P 10,000, but if you follow that logic, you would end up with something like 10,000 plus in the early 2030s. So that was the first reason is if you look at historical returns, that would lead you to think that the S&P was going to have good returns going forward above historical normal returns. The second was that if you believe that capital flows were treated best, and I look at equities and the free cash flow yield you can get in the S&P 500 versus whether it's corporate bonds or government bonds or cash, By far, this is one of the most attractive relative free cash flow yields of equities. So to the extent that people believe that capital goes where it's treated best, it ought to go into equities. So independent of what's happened historically, this is a point in time. And then third, when you've looked at secular bull markets and bear markets in the past, one of the hallmarks of that is money flows really to the thing that's in favor and money flows out of the asset that's out of favor. And so Flows into equities have been really weak over the last decade plus, while flows into fixed income have been very strong. Whereas at the end of the secular bull market in the late 90s, that was the last secular bull market, 1982 to 2000, flows into equities dominated flows into fixed income. So investors have not shifted their allocation into equities. So from a behavioral perspective, we aren't where everyone's already into equities. And then the fourth thing is about demographics and productivity. As I read about what most people are writing, demographics is viewed as a negative. And in the paper, I go through the rationale for why demographics are actually a positive. And linked to that is not only are demographics going to be a positive, but correspondingly, productivity is likely to surprise to the upside going forward. So the four key reasons, again, are historical pattern of relative return, the free cash flow yield of equities relative to all other assets, flows into equities being much weaker than flows into fixed income, and demographics and productivity being positive tailwinds as opposed to negative headwinds. And then finally, I would say it's that that is very much out of consensus. So history suggests very clearly that returns ought to be above normal. But while history is suggesting that, the consensus opinion is for much lower equity returns going forward. And so I felt it was useful for me to lay out the historical case for why equities ought to do better than historical norms going forward. But I do want to point out that 
I talk about from 82 to 2000, which was the last secular bull market, that you had the crash of 87, you had the Gulf War with a recession in 1990, you had the S&L crisis, Japan in the 90s was a debacle in terms of the stock market, you had the Asian financial crisis, you had LTTM and the Russian debt crisis. Bad things can happen in secular bull markets, like a pandemic, but that doesn't mean that that is the end of a secular bull market. Those tend to be great opportunities. You know, there's more detail about each of these points in a secular bull market paper that I wrote, and there are a lot of pictures in there, so it's not too much heavy reading, by the way, Jim. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Your analytical acumen is definitely at the center of your investment philosophy, so we appreciate that. Gary, thank you very much for your time, comments, and insights. We truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for your time today. Thank you, Gary. We hope today's call was impactful for you, and thank you all for your time and partnership. If you need any additional information on anything that was discussed, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor. Thank you again for participating today. Stay safe, and thank you again. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, 
Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APOC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia. To wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.